Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. You know, the summer is slow, your TV shows abandon you, everything's on hiatus, but not us. We are here and we are ready to go. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Have y'all heard about this everything is cake kind of trend that kind of oh, yeah. swept social media? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of last week, the week before, and everyone had some kind of cake reference or I can't believe this wasn't cake. Well, there's an article from Inverse by Emma Batool that's called Everything is Cake. Scientists explain why the viral trend tickles the brain. And it basically kind of looks into how hyper-realistic art, and specifically these cakes, have a few things in common and why they're so delightful and kind of disturbing at the same time. So they noted that it was really a BuzzFeed tasty video that featured the hyper-realistic cakes of a Turkish baker named Tuba Gekel, which is, by the way, the coolest name I've ever yeah. heard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it just really took off. And part of it is because Rolf Nelson, who's a professor of psychology at Wheaton College who studies visual perception, says that it's because these cakes create a strange dissonance in our brain. So this strange dissonance is kind of a three-part cognitive journey, which is what makes these cakes and other pieces of art so rewarding. And it starts with the fact that one of the reasons that our brain enjoys art is that art sets up an expectation and then violates that expectation. Sometimes it's more funny than aesthetic because we have the idea that art shouldn't cater to our urges in terms of predictability, and the cake examples can be treated the same way. So the more realistic that art, or in this case, cakes can get, the more our brains are having to constantly adjust our expectations. And when you get to hyper-realistic art, it kind of takes things to a whole new level. I don't know, man. Like the number of things that turn out to be cake, at some point you start questioning your surroundings. You're like, (laughs) can I get in the car and drive somewhere? I don't know. Maybe my car has been secretly cake this whole time. I can't. Well, they they do include um, in this story a text from someone named Kara R. Brown. It's not a text. I'm sorry. It's a tweet. And it says, I'm so traumatized. I thought this was going to be cake. And it's just a regular video of someone cutting into a stack of pancakes. So there there already has been a little bit of backlash now that we set our expectations to everything is cake. But, you know, our brains are plastic. We can probably readjust and get on with making sense of a hyper-realistic and completely confusing world. (laughs) Next link. Next link. So I'll start with a question. Do y'all consider yourselves to be perfectionists? No. Ah, it depends. If I care about the thing, yes. If I don't, I'm immediately like, just get it out of my face. Do the worst job I can. I don't care. Okay, that's actually a much more nuanced (laughs) answer than mine. I like that one. Well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, I think that's a good answer for the article that we're going to look at now, which is called The Problem with Perfectionists. So, you know, people often brag about being perfectionists, especially in the workplace, Mm -hmm. but new research is showing that people much prefer colleagues with realistic expectations. So when you two say, you know, maybe not so much, or it depends, that's kind of a sigh of relief for some people, according to the study. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So when you hear the word perfectionist, the person that might spring to mind might be somebody who is like a boss or a colleague or a work friend whose standards have nothing to do with reality. Mm. They will await the impossible from themselves or others put in hours and hours making tweaks that are invisible to anyone but themselves and then just wind up burnt out and exhausted and they'll often even advertise this trait announcing brightly that they're a bit of a perfectionist 
The idea is that it's a boast and a way to differentiate themselves as a star employee, because after all, who wouldn't want to hire someone who strives for such perfection? Well, the research increasingly suggests that perfectionism can actually negatively affect the workplace environment, alienate colleagues, and make it harder for teams to get along. So, forthcoming research from psychologist Emily Klazuski and Kathleen Otto, who are from Germany's Philips University of Marburg, suggests that if colleagues could choose between working with a perfectionist or a non-perfectionist, they would always prefer the non-perfectionist, who is the person with realistic expectations for themselves and also for the team. Wow. So research prior has tended to focus on perfectionist actual output rather than the effect it might have on team climate or interpersonal relationships. Mm. But Klazuski says that it's worth investigating. They know that from previous research that good team climate is important for mental well-being at work. And I can tell you personally that it's also very important for productivity, period. Oh, yeah, for your own personal one. Because that's what I was thinking about is the negative aspect of perfectionism that I'm familiar with and some people that I know is a, such a gripping fear that it's not going to be perfect that they don't start at all. Like, at mm -hmm. least if you're a perfectionist and you're like, no, I have to work 15 extra hours on this. It's like, well, OK, you're damaging yourself, but at least you're doing more work. But if you're just sitting there going like, oh, no, no, I can't even start typing because it won't be mm -hmm. perfect. That's the very, very damaging. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a conversation to have now because there's actually evidence that perfectionism is on the rise. A 2018 analysis from British researchers Andrew Hill and Thomas Curran actually investigated more than 40,000 college students' answers to a perfectionism scale questionnaire, which was compiled between 1986 and 2015. And young people are far more likely to be perfectionists than their predecessors. Ooh, mm -hmm. So recent college students, whether they're millennials or Gen Z, perceive others as expecting more from them while simultaneously having higher expectations of themselves and those around them. I wonder if we've done any studies about the correlation between high incidences of self-reporting perfectionism and anxiety. Oh, for because sure. in terms of like, you know, the expectation that people are putting on themselves as well as other people are putting on them. Yeah, and I think there's a big correlation as well between anxiety and perfectionism in the younger generations and helicopter parenting in the older generations, uh, where, yeah. you know, it's just you're raised in this environment of anxiety. And this is mm -hmm. a tangent, but it was a damn interesting article many, many months, maybe even years ago, about there was a strong correlation they studied between helicopter parenting and economic disparity. And basically, their conclusion at the time was that helicopter parenting is not a uniquely American thing by any means. It has mm -hmm. come up again and again in different societies at different times, primarily when the economic divide was really big, where you had the haves with way too much and too many have-nots. And when you mm -hmm. have a strong middle class, you have a general understanding of, OK, I can go and get a job and I'll be OK. And mm -hmm. so that leads to lower helicopter parenting because you trust, well, my kid's going to be fine. Whereas if you have this situation of you have to go to college and probably get a master's to get any kind of income yeah. or you're going to be super poor, that anxiety feeds into the helicopter parenting, which feeds into the kids. Yeah. Huh. That makes a lot of sense with the next part of this, okay. which says that <laughs> initially, many psychologists thought perfectionism was wholly negative and deeply neurotic. In 1950, the German psychoanalyst Karen Horney described perfectionists as being terrorized by the tyranny of the should, that they mm -hmm. felt they should be any number of contradictory ideals, able to solve any problem, complete impossible tasks, and telling a patient that they expected too much of themselves tended to be fruitless, mm -hmm. she wrote. He will usually add explicitly or implicitly that it is better to expect too much of himself than too little. Mm. But in the decades since, academic opinion has gotten a little bit friendlier to the idea of perfectionism. 
On the one hand, it is closely correlated with mental health difficulties, including depression, anxiety, and eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And professionally speaking, it can equate to burnout and stress, because expecting the impossible may mean setting yourself up for failure. However, they have found that perfectionists are usually more motivated and conscientious than their non-perfectionist peers, which are highly desirable traits in an employee. Mm -hmm. So, in a best-case scenario, perfectionists actually can successfully channel their high standards into doing great work while cutting themselves and others some slack when things don't go perfectly. However, that balance isn't always so easy to strike. So, in Klasuski's and Otto's study, perfectionists and non-perfectionists were asked to rank potential colleagues for desirability and to describe their experiences of getting along with others at work. Perfectionists were overwhelmingly described as highly able but hard to get along with, while (laughs) non-perfectionists topped the ratings for social skills and how much people wanted to work with them, even if they weren't considered as competent. Perfectionists themselves seemed to notice a little coolness from their peers, <laughs> and many of them described feeling excluded or on the edge of teen dynamics. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is that perfectionists can be useful. You just have to make them work by themselves. Don't, <laughs> no team activities. Or, you yeah. know, with the robots, because I feel like it makes a lot of sense to harness technology where we can have this expectation of perfectionism from our technology because who are they going to alienate, really? Right. right? <laughs> but then, like, leave a lot of the, you know, soft skills, the emotional IQ to the creatures that are better able and equipped to do that. Yeah. And they do actually talk about how a lot of researchers now differentiate between the different forms of perfectionism and describe three different types, actually. So there's self-oriented perfectionists who set very high standards for just themselves, a socially prescribed perfectionist who believes that acceptance of others is dependent on their own perfection, (laughs) so to be accepted by the world, they have to be perfect, or an other-oriented perfectionist, which is the most annoying, I'm guessing, (laughs) who expects (laughs) flawlessness from those around them. And so each type has their own strengths and weaknesses, yeah. So, Klazuski's and Otto's study showed that perfectionists who limit their quest for excellence to their own work are far easier to get along with, no Mm -hmm. surprise, than those who expect a lot of those around them. And in a vast meta-analysis of 30 years of studies, they found that there was another commonly used classification system, which were based on two things. One being excellence-seeking, and the other being failure-avoiding, which mm. goes back to the other thing you're describing, Jan, with yep. people like who are so freaked out that they won't even take action. Right. You know, the first kind of perfectionist fixates on achieving excessively high standards, and they will spend those extra 15 hours or whatever to make sure that everything's in the margins and whatnot. Whereas the ones who are failure avoiding are more likely to not be agreeable and more likely to experience the downsides of perfectionism, including workaholism, anxiety, and burnout. You just got to channel it is all. You got to find the right direction to aim it. Yeah, I mean, that's true of any neurosis, right? Yeah. So this is actually really surprising, which is that there's actually no relationship between perfectionism and job performance for either group in this study. Hmm. What? Yeah. Dana Harari, who worked on the meta-analysis, says, To me, the most important takeaway of this research is the null relationship between perfectionism and performance. It's not positive, it's not negative, it's really just null. 
So your, an- your anxieties are meaningless. They don't do any good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, it doesn't actually help anything, apparently. Thanks, uh, Mom. Yeah, so that, that was quite a hammer to read for me personally, because, oh, no. you know, I've had my own perfectionist moments, which I've calmed down quite a bit throughout the years. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it's kind of funny to find out that, yeah, it doesn't actually matter, kind of similar to how I always thought it mattered mm-hmm. uh, at the end of the day. The research suggests that by throwing all of their weight on one task, they're missing other people, essentially. They will inadvertently neglect others along the way or possibly miss the value of just maintaining positive relationships with their coworkers. Whereas people who manage perfectionists should try and encourage them to invest a little bit less in their work and a little more in their own well-being. Or at the very least, invest less in their colleagues' work. Like, <laughs> yes. turn it inward if that's if you have to turn it somewhere. Stay out of my business. Don't. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. that seems like a really tough sell for a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, chill out on your own work and live your life, man. Like, how are you supposed to have that conversation and have it resonate in such a way that it'll land? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you as having been a manager, that conversation is kind of about being like, this isn't as important as it seems. Like, Mm -hmm. there's other things that we need to get to. It's essentially driving the perfectionism to point at something beyond what's right in front of you. Because I do know that it's quite short-sighted. Well, you you just have to threaten them. Use that anxiety and basically be like, if you don't stop being a perfectionist, you're going to fail. And then... (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I mean, honestly, that was kind of how I worked on my own perfectionism. I was like, hmm, wouldn't it be more efficient Mm -hmm. to be less anxious all the time? And that's kind of what helped me get over it. Well, good for you. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. Well, I am unbelievably genuinely excited about this next article. It comes from Esquire from Chris Nashawati, and it is a bit of a retrospective on the Jaws movie franchise. (gasps) Nice. Yeah. I love the movie Jaws. I can't even count how many times I saw it as a kid. And more distinctly, (laughs) I also saw all of the sequels multiple times. (laughs) (laughs) And unfortunately, a lot of what this article goes into is why those sequels are objectively terrible movies. Uh, But that didn't bother me as a child. I still loved them. And (laughs) all of this has come up because June 20th of this year was the 45th anniversary of the original Jaws. It was the first summer blockbuster. Prior to that, summer movies were considered kind of a lull. It really wasn't Uh a given that kids went to the movies during the summer. And this was the first one that just blew it out of the water and made them start thinking, no, we should release our biggest movies in the summer. It made $470 million at the box office, which made it the highest grossing film of all time in 1975. Wow. So it was obviously a big success. They wanted to make a sequel almost right off the bat. But the first sequel was doomed from the start because Spielberg refused to direct it. He was already working on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and he was quoted as saying, making a sequel to anything is just a cheap carny trick. Now, it should be noted he changed his tune by the time they got to Indiana Jones. He did make sequels. (laughs) (laughs) And then also uh, Richard Dreyfuss, who played the scientist, he was also too famous now to bother with a sequel. And Robert Shaw, the actor who played Quint, died of a heart attack just a few years after the movie came out. So by the time they kind of had a script and were ready to do a sequel, only Roy Scheider was left. And the only reason that Scheider did the movie at all was because he had a three-picture deal with Universal Pictures 
And he didn't want to do it, but he was contractually obligated to. Dang. So they switched directors a month in. And basically, the whole second movie was a complete rehash of the concept of the first movie. Except now there was this implication that the shark was actively going after teens, kind of like a slasher pick. Like it, <laughs> it was very weird. But for me as a kid, I was like, yes, an evil shark. That sounds awesome. <laughs> uh, and it still made $208 million. It was the highest grossing sequel at the time until Rocky II came out. And then oh. they got to Jaws 3D, which, as the pun implies, <laughs> was the third one, and it was in 3D. The article said they described Jaws 3D as a gimmick in search of a plot. There was sort of this resurgence <laughs> of 3D films in the late 80s, and they just were desperate to make anything 3D. There was a Freddy Krueger film that was 3D. They just said, anything that's coming out, we're going to make it 3D. And uh -huh. this one actually is kind of close to my heart. I really like this one. <laughs> they moved the setting from Amity Island to SeaWorld Orlando, which oh. at the time, I don't know this for sure, but I am pretty sure that was a paid product placement. Right. Because you couldn't use SeaWorld's name without their permission. And they actually filmed yeah. on the set of SeaWorld Orlando. So that had to imply yeah. some kind of like permission. Right. But then at the same time, like there's scenes in that movie where like you're in an underwater aquarium tunnel. So you can look up and see all the fish above you. And the shark is literally attacking the tube and people are going <gasps> to drown. So, like, I don't know why SeaWorld thought that was a good promotion to think you might die at our resort. Yeah. Batter um, our brand. Here's yeah. uh, the money that we're going to require for it. Yeah. But, I mean, maybe they just figured out, you know, A, at the end, they get the shark and SeaWorld's very safe. So you can go. I don't know what they thought. But, um, <laughs> of course, nobody from the original was in Jaws 3D. The eldest Brody son was the main character. He was an adult now. He was played by Dennis Quaid. So, you know, they had some big names in it. Uh, the, I should note, the article actually says Randy Quaid, but I happen to know that's wrong. I went and looked it up to oh. be sure. It's Dennis Quaid. Um, <laughs> which I think we can all agree is the more respectable of the Quaid brothers if you're going to yeah, put Yeah, but if you're going to pick, you know, a random Quaid to appear in a third gimmicky Jaws sequel, <laughs> right. I would have gone with Randy. That was, I think, a fair assumption to make, even if it was wrong. Right. Well, and Quaid later justified his participation after the movie was a big flop. He said, oh, look, I was in the throes of cocaine addiction when I made that. So. <laughs> Oh, wow. That's yeah. the most 80s response ever. I yeah. love it. And to be fair, it also had Leah Thompson, who was, she played the mom in Back to the Future just two years yeah. earlier. So, I mean, they apparently had enough clout to get some big names into it. And even though it had terrible reviews, it still grossed $87.9 million and it was profitable, which huh. allowed for Jaws 4. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> now, Wait, how many are there? There's four. Just four. Okay. And the great thing about four is I guarantee you, you know something about this movie, even if you've never seen it, because the final installment was called Jaws the Revenge, and the tagline was, this time, it's personal. <gasps> That's oh. where that comes from. Yes, that was the movie. Wow. And in this one, it truly is. They go back to the mother, Ellen Brody, who was the original actress. Her husband had died of a heart attack, and she claims that it was the fear of that damn shark that made his heart give out <laughs> after so many years. <laughs> then her younger son, who is now a cop, gets eaten by a shark. And in her grief, she goes to the Bahamas to hang out with her older son, who was the one who used to work at SeaWorld but is no longer played by Dennis Quaid. And the shark, <laughs> according to Jaws 4, follows her for 1,200 miles down to the Bahamas. Like, he, he wow. swims after her because he's trying to get the last members of the Brody family. <laughs> it is personal. Yeah, and believe it or not, they got star power for this one, too. Michael Caine 
is in Jaws 4 somehow. (laughs) He's the love interest. The main plot is basically, can this woman let go of her shark obsession long enough to find love again? You know, and... uh, I love a good grounded story. I know. It makes so much sense. (laughs) I really want to see this now. (laughs) I'm telling you, it's awful and I love it. (laughs) The main purpose in this one, of course, again, was product placement. They were promoting the new Jaws ride at Universal Studios. Fun side story. I've actually been on that ride before they disassembled it and moved on. It was one of those like on a track under the water rides where the boat Mm -hmm. just kind of goes through and you pass these animatronic scenes from the movie. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so at the very end of Jaws 1, the shark bites the oxygen tank and explodes. Spoiler alert. And uh, (laughs) we were riding on the boat and the big fire explosion happens and the lady with the little microphone is just like, oh, no, Um, hang on. And apparently our boat had come off the track. And was heading straight for the fire, and it just <gasps> it just kept going. And she starts like making calls and hitting buttons, and the, they put the fire out eventually. And then we were stuck there for like an hour. But <laughs> but I distinctly remember that ride, uh, and it was a decent ride. <laughs> Watch out for that heart attack in fifty years. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and you know, most of the people who worked on Jaws four said they knew at the outset it was, as the director called it, a ticking time bomb waiting to go off. Mm. They noted in the article during one climactic scene, Michael Caine is pulled out of the water. The camera cuts away, and when it comes back, his shirt is bone dry. Uh, <laughs> there's several scenes where you can see the animatronic rigging holding the shark up. Oh, no. It has the dubious honor of having a zero percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, wow. <laughs> they, uh, they had some quotes from uh, Siskel and Ebert at the time. Gene Siskel said, when you see and hear the nasal Lorraine Gary on screen, you want the shark to eat her. And <laughs> Roger Ebert said, it is not simply a bad movie, but also a stupid and incompetent one. So, not a lot of love for the Jaws franchise at the end, but believe it or not, it still made money. The budget was only $20 million and it grossed $50 million. So, you know, <laughs> when you start to question why do movie studios put out terrible movies, the answer is because we pay to see them. They make a lot of money off yeah, of them. We're asking for it. Yeah. There was a great closing line. Michael Caine was asked at some point if he'd ever sat down and actually watched Jaws 4. And he said, no. However, I have seen the house that it built, meaning his own very expensive house. <laughs> so, <laughs> so apparently he doesn't feel bad about it. And uh, neither should we. I think we should watch it without any shame. <laughs> I'm sold. I'm, Absolutely. I'm ready to find these. I'm telling you, start with three. In SeaWorld, watching people get attacked in like the Shamu shows, it's great. Like, <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. We're going to kind of bring things back a little bit to reality while still keeping our head in the clouds. Um, (laughs) Tanya Basu has got a really great and important article in the MIT Technology Review, which is called How to Talk to Conspiracy Theorists and Mm. Still Be Kind. Oh, (sighs) all right. Kindness is good. Yeah, it is. This is this is the broccoli portion of our um, lineup today, where it's like we we all gotta eat it. It's good for us. It's maybe not the most palatable, but they basically interviewed and got some information from the moderators of a really famous subreddit called Change My View. If you haven't heard about it, basically mm. someone says, you know, they post something like, "Here's what I believe in. Go ahead and change my view." And obviously, 
if you're already heading to a subreddit with that name, you do have some receptivity to give me some different data, give me some more information. I'm open to changing my mind. Mm -hmm. But the idea here is, look, we're all susceptible to conspiracy theories, all of us. It's extremely human because it's a defense mechanism, right? We're primed to be suspicious and afraid of things that can't be explained. And boy, howdy, there's a whole lot going on right now that we have good reason to be suspicious and afraid of. And so there's something called the third person effect, which is a hypothesis that people tend to think the average person will be much more influenced by fake news or conspiracy theories than they are themselves. Right. Um, but the truth is that none of us are perfectly immune to them. So, okay, let's talk about how to talk to a conspiracy theorist. And they've got a really nice, almost BuzzFeed-esque 10 item list, which, you know, from the MIT Technology Review, I thought was kind of interesting. But we need to get the kind of bite-sized chunk because this is a really difficult ball of wax to untangle. I'm sorry for me those metaphors. Okay. <laughs> Number one, whenever you're talking to a conspiracy theorist, you always want to speak respectfully. If you sure. don't have respect, compassion, or empathy, no one is going to open their mind or heart to you and no one is going to listen. This is one of the things that I struggle with a lot because I tend to lean on my education or the training that I had in critical thinking with my philosophy degree. And it immediately results in me othering people of they'll never understand this. I shouldn't even try. And that's a really disrespectful, non-empathetic and lacking compassion standpoint to take. So that's something that I personally struggle with. Another way that you should think about talking to a conspiracy theorist is to go private. Send someone a text or reach out through DMs or pick up the phone instead of posting on someone's wall or doing it on Twitter or something like that. Mm -hmm. That way the discussion is going to prevent the person from getting embarrassed. It will reduce the chances that they're going to feel defensive and just dig their heels in. And it also signals that you have a real interest in conversation as opposed to just publicly eviscerating somebody online with a record that will follow them around forever. And then test the waters first. One of the examples that a moderator noted said, you should try to ask what it would take to change their mind. And if they say they will never change their mind, then take them at their word and don't bother engaging. Mm -hmm. So figure out how to manage whether or not this is even going to have any kind of fruitful bearing or if it's just going to be a non-starter, spike cortisol. That's no good for anybody either, right? Sure. Fourth point here, you always want to agree on something. I mean, it doesn't have to be on everything, but, <laughs> right. you know, because all conspiracy theories have a kernel of truth, figure out what that kernel of truth is and establish it to build trust and give this like, I'm on your side vibe so that you can prep for the stickier stuff that's to come. Number six is using the Socratic method, basically using questions to help others probe their own argument and see if it stands up. So this is not the same as just like boiling someone over into frustration by asking them a bunch of questions and being an edgelord to frustrate someone into shutting down. <laughs> you basically want to change someone's view by making them feel like they've uncovered it themselves. So by asking the questions and causing them to re-examine or, you know, find the sources on their own, maybe that sets them on a path of discovery where they can untangle it themselves which is way more effective than just hammering someone down, right? Right. Yeah, it kind of trips me out how much this is just reading like a managerial playbook. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. A lot of this is managing IQ and EQ in people and figuring out what is the best method to actually resonate with them somehow, sure. right? Or it's a masterclass in manipulation, you know, one of the two. But, <laughs> but, but I think that even that, you got to put it in nice terms and then you don't. <laughs> exactly. And if you want to talk about manipulation, the fact that these conspiracy theories oh, sure. gain any steam at all, you know, this is a fighting fire with fire, but in a prescribed control burn instead of just like a Molotov cocktail 
thrown in somebody's brain. Oh, sure. Right? <laughs> I'm a I'm a huge proponent of manipulation. I, it's, it's good stuff. <laughs> All right. That is now recorded for posterity. I wish you well on that one. Uh, the last ones are very kind of not soft and fluffy, but things that are kind of obvious to people who may have already been trying to engage in these conversations for years now, right? You want to be very, very careful with loved ones. Mm. You have to basically perform a calculation on whether it's worth to engage. How deeply does someone believe this? How harmful is their belief? And, you know, sometimes you do have to pick your battles. One Change My View user named Canada Constitution said, <laughs> a harmonious Thanksgiving is preferable to fights over social media. I know some people who are kind of divided on that, but, you know, <laughs> the relationships are meant to endure. The conspiracy theories will flame out like they often do. Well, right? and if you cut those people out of your life, you've just cut their lifeline, right? Like you want to maintain that yeah. connection in the hopes that they will be able to come back from it. Exactly. That's super important. And then demonstrating that this compassion really does value the relationship so you can't be othered by them as rapidly. Number nine is if it gets bad, just stop, right? <laughs> if you're not enjoying the discussion and getting angry, just stop. Just stop. It's a good rule for life. It is a good rule for life. Um, as one Change My View moderator suggested, they call it, quote, IRL calming down. So just shut off the phone, shut off the computer, go for a walk. And for number 10, just to kind of end this on a hopeful note, every little bit helps, right? You have to manage your expectations that one conversation is probably not going to change a person's mind. And that's okay. People are not going to have seismic shifts in belief all at once. Sometimes you can shift someone's perspective a little, like water eroding a rock. So mm -hmm. you won't debunk a conspiracy theory, but maybe lay the path for someone in the future to do so. Will do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Next it, link. It, oh. Next link. <laughs> we all just want to jettison this one as quickly as possible. Yeah, okay. I'm just like it's making me flash back to all, just every conversation like this I've seen fly across my feed all at once, and I think you know one of those rules was just take a break, right? So yeah, I, I think I'll be embracing that one for a little Fair while enough. longer. Let's I'm take out. a break for this one and then go to the next link. Yeah. 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 <laughs> next, next link. link. Okay, this article comes to us from quantummagazine.org, and it is called How Your Heart Influences What You Perceive and Fear. Hmm. So this is about some scientific studies they did on the effect of the heart as well as how you perceive senses as well as emotion. So we consider the brain to be the very center of who we are and what we do, right? It rules our senses, our movements, thought, and it holds our memory. Sure. But the brain is also rooted in our body, and the connection between the two goes both ways. So if certain internal receptors indicate hunger, we want to eat. If they indicate cold, we dress more warmly. However, decades of research have also shown that those sensations do a lot more than just alert the brain to the body's immediate concerns and needs. And as the heart, lungs, gut, and other organs will transmit information to the brain, they also actually affect how we perceive and interact with our environment in surprisingly profound ways. In the late 19th century, the psychologist William James and physician Carl Lang proposed that emotional states are the brain's perception of certain bodily changes in a response to stimulus. That a pounding heart or shallow breathing gives rise to emotions like fear or anger rather than vice versa. So researchers have since found many examples of physiological arousal leading to emotional arousal, but they wanted to delve deeper into that link, and the heartbeat actually provides the perfect means to do so. Ooh. So cardiac activity has two phases. Systole, which is when the muscle contracts and pumps out blood, so your heart is pumping blood out, 
followed by diastole when it relaxes and then refills with blood. So mm-hmm. your systole, diastole, systole, diastole. That's just the heart beating. Mm-hmm. Beginning in the 1930s, scientists found that systole actually dampens pain and curbs your startle reflexes. Further work traced this effect to the fact that during systole, pressure sensors send signals about the heart's activity to inhibitory regions of the brain. And that's useful because while the brain has to constantly balance and integrate all these internal external signals, you can't pay attention to everything at once. So experiments even show that people are more likely to forget words that were presented exactly at systole than words that they saw and encoded during the rest of the cardiac cycle. So if they were trying to memorize a word and they got it when they were pumping blood out, they're more likely to forget it, essentially. Sarah Garfinkel is a neuroscientist at Brighton and Sussex Medical School in England and is one of the lead investigators on the memory work. And she says that she really sees the senses like a seesaw. When you're sensing something internally, then it dampens down processing of external signals. When your heartbeat is going, it's just loading up the seesaw to one side. Hmm. In a study published in May, they found that when people were presented with a barely detectable electrical stimulus to their finger, they were more likely to perceive it during diastole, when the heart was taking in blood, and to miss it during systole. It's like basically all day long there's a tiny distraction every half a second. And if you can just time the things you want to avoid with your heartbeat, and then you won't have to pay attention to them as much. Is yeah. that even possible, though? No, I probably mean, not. to time the things in time. <laughs> it, it, it is. I'm just saying, like, if you're getting a tattoo, you should, like, jab the needle in at a regular rhythm and try try to get your heart to beat at the same time. Oh, that sounds awful. Yes. In <laughs> <laughs> or I guess in theory as well. Mm-hmm. Probably awful in both. But yeah, so... Ezra Al, who's a doctoral student at the Max Planck Institute, says it's fascinating that even in this millisecond range, our perception can change. So these are very, very small intervals, like you're saying. The team noted how the heart might be loading up the seesaw. During systole, the heart pushes blood into the rest of the body, where it's possible to feel your pulse in your fingertips. It's advantageous for the brain to cancel out those signals since they don't actually provide new information about the environment. Like, your body already knows that blood is going out into your extremities, so why bother feeling it? But in Mm. the process of doing so, slight touch sensations might get suppressed as well. Hmm. What does not seem to get suppressed is fear. So in 2014, Garfinkel and her colleagues showed that the processing of fear and threatening stimuli was not inhibited during systole. While it activated inhibitory brain regions, it also activated the amygdala, which is the area that has a lot to do with your experience of fear. And researchers found that during systole, people tended to perceive fearful faces more intensely, but this wasn't the case for faces expressing a neutral emotion. Garfinkel says that what's most striking about fear is that it breaks through. It's impervious to this inhibitory effect of the heart. And it seems like an evolutionary thing where if your fear is accidentally dampened by the same mechanism that dampens the touch in your fingertips, that's not going to be helpful for you if there is something going on. So you have to like separately accelerate the fear in somewhere else in the brain Mm -hmm. to make sure that that overriding signal gets heard. Yeah. Yeah. And the article says that this is likely an adaptive response to the greater number of systoles that fear provokes. So if your heart is beating really strong and fast and you're in a fear state, you don't want to be sensitive to pain. And you Mm -hmm. want to be able to run over broken twigs and glass to escape a threat, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. you still want to be hyper alert to a threat in the environment. So fear is that thing you need to survive even Mm -hmm. while you're dampening the rest of these sensations. Right. Mm -hmm. Garfinkel recently found that this link to fear is even stronger than expected. 
Her team conditioned test subjects to associate certain shapes with a mild electrical shock and then presented them with those shapes as well as more neutral ones during systole and diastole. The expectation was that people would always exhibit more fear of the shapes associated with the shock. Instead, the participants actually responded more fearfully to all the shapes that were presented during systole. Hmm. And that overshadows them learning initially what's associated with shock or not shock. There's something inherent about the thing that is presented when the heart is beating, which is more fearful. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. So exercise. Um, We should all be terrified of exercise is what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I already am. (laughs) Garfinkel and others have also found that CISL is more likely to enhance fear processing in people with anxiety. The researchers hope that their work can actually guide therapies for certain phobias and post-traumatic stress disorder. Because if you can change how threatening stimuli are by presenting them at different phases of the cardiac cycle, you can get people out of anxiety states in one form or another. So I guess they're trying to teach the heart how much to fear or not fear something by presenting the thing at different points. Mm. I guess kind of in a a very low-level exposure therapy or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. See, again, this just sounds like a shrink put me on a treadmill. I don't know that I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right. Well, we have a real quick one here at the end. This one comes from BBC Travel. It's about everybody's favorite drug, LSD. Yay! Oh, nice. (laughs) (laughs) More specifically, it's about a celebration that takes place in the hometown of LSD, which is Basel, Switzerland. Possibly it's Basel. I'm not sure. It's it's an ancient city. It was founded 2,000 years ago. It's right on the Rhine River, just on the present-day border where Switzerland, France, and Germany all meet. There's some great photos in the article. It's got lots of medieval architecture. Their university was founded in the 1400s, and they have the world's oldest art gallery going back to the 1600s. They also boast more museums than any city in Europe. So it seems like just a cool town, period. Yeah. It is also the birthplace of Albert Hoffman, the famed creator of LSD. It was Mm -hmm. originally tested as a circulatory and respiratory stimulant. The lab mice who took it just got kind of strangely restless. So it was abandoned, (laughs) and it wasn't until five years later that Hoffman kind of said, you know, I want to go back and look at that again. And as he was purifying it, he accidentally got some in his system, and he kind of started feeling a little woozy, so he went home for the day. And this is where the, the sort of celebratory thing comes in. He rode his bike home from work while on the world's first acid trip. (laughs) And he described the entire process in his memoir. He said there were kaleidoscopic, fantastic images surging in on me, alternating, variegated, opening and then closing themselves in circles and spirals, exploding in colored fountains, rearranging and hybridizing themselves in constant flux. And there's more. He wrote a whole book called LSD, My Problem Child. And, um, (laughs) And of course, LSD went on to become LSD. And there's a long and storied history about that. The Oxford University Press estimates over 10,000 papers have been published on LSD, making it the most studied pharmaceutical ever. Wow. And in 1985, an Illinois professor named Thomas B. Roberts suggested that people should celebrate Bicycle Day on April 16th to commemorate Hoffman's first trippy bicycle ride home. And (laughs) the idea took off. And now Bicycle Day is celebrated worldwide, but especially in Basel. They have a trippy little music festival. There are arts and science conferences dedicated to the drug. And there is a group bicycle ride that travels along the eight and a half kilometer path that Hoffman originally took 
from his lab to his house. That's delightful. Yeah, they don't explicitly say it, but I assume everyone is high. (laughs) (laughs) That feels dangerous, though, to take like a pretty potent hallucinogen while operating a vehicle that even sober people are often injured. Right, right. Well, you know, the Swiss, they're very, uh, (laughs) (laughs) very daring. Oh, they've got single payer health care. They're fine. That's right. That's right. Well, and if you get enough people riding the path, they pretty much have to shut down the streets to automobiles. And so, you know, you're a little safer (laughs) than you might be if you just did this on your own. But that's pretty much it. It's just uh, an interesting, weird little holiday that I personally will not be celebrating. But, you know, if it's your thing, go for it. All right, that is all we have time for today. There are plenty of articles we didn't get to. Some of those articles include, are there any black holes left over from the Big Bang? Why do some twins vanish in the womb? And how the U.S. hid the atomic bomb? So all that, plus all the articles we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you'd like to support us and help keep us on the air, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.